0: So for those on the group that are joining and for those on the podcast listening, I'll give you a little bit of background as to my guests. Uh, Well known in world rowing, coached at Cambridge University, then at British Rowing, part of the high performance team there, followed by Rowing Island. And now you're an entrepreneur setting up some tech in the rowing space. But before all this started, I'll just go through your uh, your history so 1988 junior four third in the final b next year followed up with winning the world championships 1989 coxas four by what was first great britain second daylight eight second victory not too bad then you went down under to tassie in the under 23 eight fourth just missed out on the medals there and then in 91 gold in the eight, I think that was a European event, right?
1: That was the, it was, I was the under 23s, but it was in Sicily that year. Yeah. Wow. World championships. yeah.
0: And then 92 in the Cox's four first, 93 in the eight. And then in, in the opens, the senior, Finland, correct? 1995 Cox's yep. four yep. gold medal.
1: No, we have, that was the B final. We won the B, B. final. Amazing.
0: How did all that started? how did you get started into rowing?
1: Just, I went to school, really. It was just available at school. And I mean, just, people take you out and taught you how to f- fall out of a fixed seat, clink a single skull and just progress from there. Really just started rowing at school. So I used to do lots of other sports before, and then just it took over, you know, as soon as you start doing it properly, you can't do anything else. So that's how it went when I was about 16. That's the only sport I did properly, really.
0: I don't know what that is about rowing. It seems that most of the people I speak to, it's, it just seems to be all encompassing, doesn't it? What what do you think? Yeah, it does.
1: I I think people expect the amount of time it takes to do it. At school, it was good actually, because we were encouraged to play competitive house football and house rugby, and and I did a bit of swimming as well. So they encouraged us to do lots of other stuff, which I think nowadays is probably a bit harder. The kids train more than we did. We only trained, say only seven times a week or something for rowing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then you did your football or whatever you did on top of that. But Yeah. But it didn't feel like hard work. You just enjoyed it hanging with your mates really. I remember sitting like double mass, looking out the window over the river, thinking, got lunch in twenty minutes and the water's really flat, let me get to go rowing. You no, know, that's what it was like. It was really fun.
0: Did you do weight training during lunch? Was there enough time to get down to water the water or did you do some something? Oh,
1: where I was at boarding school the whole thing was all there. It's so easy. Yeah. But um no, we did weights twice a week. Once Sunday was the day we're not allowed to train school rules. You don't have to do any organized training. So the first day would turn up and meet by accident, go for a 40 minute run and then do weights before lunch with no coach. though, just like, we just organized ourselves, but yeah, we only train once a day.
0: Have rest, right? Yeah, exactly. We only train, we never train
1: more than once a day.
0: And when you were running or- at school, what was the, what was the ambition? with, with regards to it was to win the Henley, really,
1: I guess the national schools were the main things, but in my, and I didn't know anything about rowing. And then the guy in my house, when I, we were 15 or he came up to me, said, yeah, you can do this thing, you can row for great Britain. So what does that mean? You, you go to these trials and you can do this. I was like, that sounds really cool. She said, should we do it? I said, okay. And then I had to have a knee operation. So I basically missed most of that season So we didn't do that. But then in the sixth form, I did it and that was nobody little school really did that kind of thing. It was like a new thing for our school. And we just started turning up the trials and they, and now it's quite common. So it's quite cool. for really. all the junior kids do it all the time now.
0: Yeah. But it's probably, it's quite, uh, the speed and transfer of information on the internet, Instagram, everyone's posting what they did, the trials or whatever, but back in, what did that mean? 84, 86? Yeah. I think eighty. Uh, I started
1: running in 85, 87, did national championships with, yeah, I was under 16 Then eighty eight, eighty nine, I was in my last two years at school. I did all the junior trials. But yeah, that's right. I remember like in 88, we went to a head race, Penguin Skulls. We went to race and I was my lower six and you know, the rest of the first day and everything. And then we came back, there were no results. We left without any results because it was, it was too late. We had a long way to drive home, so We just packed our boats and left without waiting for results. And then the captain of boats, a friend of mine came over later in the evening to the house and said, oh, you came second. And I was like, oh shit, I came second in J 16. So no, you came second overall. Wow. And I came first.
0: <laughs> so it must've been a, a, good heritage of rowing in the school then.
1: Yeah, it was, Dick Smith was, yeah. He went to the junior world the year before me. So he led the way a little bit as well. And he went and rode at Cambridge and stuff. Yeah, but he must've got the results from ringing people or making phone calls, there's no other way. There's no way to find it yeah. otherwise.
0: And now there's live timing and everything. Instantly yeah, exactly. To, but, but so this was hidden for you that there were actually trials. Was there much awareness? within the school and then within the boys in the school that this was something that you could actually get into or was it just a, not a closed circuit but just as a small group that knew about it and they turned up and did it and were selected? It, was, it wasn't really selective as such. It was just that nobody knew about it. And
1: because Pete played, the guy who rode with when he was younger, he, doubted dad had rode a long time ago and knew a little bit more about rowing than most of us. So I don't know how he heard about it. And then we just started talking about it amongst us and then people started going to it up to then we were quite a rural school, three hours from London. They used to win Henley quite a lot at national schools. I guess that was, and I guess it wasn't that long that they'd been doing a national team set up before that, it was just clubs would go, the crew would go to the, was a four or an eight or whatever. So this whole squad system was quite a new thing anyway.
0: So what, when did you first get selected? So 88, I think was it was.
1: 88 went to the junior worlds, the Cox four, yeah.
0: You got selected as a crew or you got put into, made up? And- oh, no, we,
1: we did a load of seat racing. And this is the time of the tide. My coach didn't even come with me. I had to go on my own. And I was, I'd done quite well in the seat racing, but wasn't going to be in a crew. And one of the guys from St. Edward's from, from Emmanuel School, Jez Edwards, one of the other coaches spoke up for me in a coaches' meeting, said, well, he needs to have a seat race because he's done really well. And he gave me one more seat race. I seat rest against one of his guys and beat him. And then got in the bottom boat, the Cox four. And that was like an eye opener for me. I suddenly had to go and spend two weeks in Thames, and staying with people I didn't know who ended up becoming your friends, don't they? Yeah. So it was, and it was awesome. I and mean, you had three weeks of just rowing, nothing else. It was so cool. It was wicked. Yeah. And for you your mean,
0: country, all the kit.
1: Yeah, I know that was amazing. That was amazing. And we went all the way out to Italy and where the Italians do things is so fun. So we had police escorts with the buses to take us to it from the hotels naked beaches by the star line all this kind of it was just like a complete whirlwind it was awesome
0: yeah amazing first first world championships and then what did you do with the kit afterwards did you swap it or
1: keep it i'm still it today yeah i would never get rid of that that means way too much definitely still have that i still have the tracksuit which is nasty actually
0: but i still got that as well maybe just a patch and stick it onto the next tracksuit yeah exactly so who kept you inspired and kept you going towards this the G B team, how did that fit in with school and the coaches at school did they it, it fit in fine with school because everything
1: revolved around when you could do sport, when you couldn't do sport. So in terms of when you're at school it was fine. You had to miss some lessons on a Saturday to go to regatta's which usually missing double French, which nobody reminded really too much. So we missed a bit of that in the summer, but not in the winter. So you didn't miss much school. The only time it was a bit tricky was in my last year we went to racing again one weekend and I was in the top group of guys at that stage and and school was going to let me go. And my housemaster knows he's got soon. My parents are like, we'll do whatever it takes. So my dad and mom drove all the way up from London, picked me up and drove me down to drop me off at Dover to get on the bus with the rest of the team. And then when we finished racing, I had to go straight in the car with them. He drove, my dad drove six hours to get me to school for midnight. Cause the teacher said, you have to be back on Sunday. You can't be back on Monday. So it was the only time they were a little bit not supportive, but actually, otherwise it was really good.
0: Did you have a mentor or a particular coach that springs to mind? Well,
1: the school? Yeah. Andy Powell, he was my J 16 coach. He was also my tutor at school and he was, he was a really my biology teacher. So he was a really important person in my development. He, he'd rode Cambridge in the blue belt, but you wouldn't know it when you were talking to him, he just, he just a really intelligent, eclectic man who was made it fun and and he taught us, and he also, this other guy, Roger Blomfield, really old classics teacher was like the technical insight. And he was such a, so we were quite lucky. We had somebody who was really technically focused, young, as a J 16 crew. So we thought technique was important. Even then, I think that was quite important to me in the end, because that was always my focus, really.
0: I think it's, it's something about, uh, rowing. You can very easily put a lot of hard work into it and think that you can move the boat fast by just pushing harder and lifting more weights and training harder and, you know, they getting the technique at the start of it, so, it's, really it's a good point. grounding to learn how to do it so you don't have to unlearn it when you go to a, a higher
1: yeah. level. and also value it because some young kids come in, so they don't even value especially really strong kids who go quickly early on because they're just strong, they don't value it quite enough. That's quite a hard mindset to fix.
0: So what stands out over the next, what is it, seven years? of rowing, coaches, crews, races? A few, I guess. I guess some of the, you know, the under 23 world championships, the
1: trips themselves, the training and the trips were really fun. The crews, the guys we rode were great. All the different countries, people you met from different countries were really fun. In terms of races, I guess one race that really stands out is winning the J 16 national championships in a coaches pair with this guy, P Hamilton, We were rowing away and he just shouted halfway through the race. God, I love winning. That was one of my memories, which was great, actually. Winning the Grand was pretty special at Henley. In 92, our university eight, we decided at Essen Regatta, to, we entered fours and eights and ended up racing the eight, both days. And we were overlapping the British eight and the final, at the finish on a Saturday. And so we were like, and we were about two and a bit legs behind the German eight, just broke the world record. And we were like, maybe we should do this at Henley. And we'd put like clear water on the South African eight that went to the Olympics in the end. Yeah. So that was quite cool. It came out of nowhere, really, that we were, we were quite quick the year before it the ladies play eight and then most of the crew stayed the same. And we were all a bit older and stronger and yeah. So that was, it was pretty, I mean, it was amazing actually. And we still, now we meet up all the time as a crew.
0: What was it about that eight that clicked? I don't know. I don't know. There was a group of us that rode
1: together for a while. We were, we'd raced the ladies plate the year before and we were quite quick. We made the final and then lost, in you know, we were on, this, on the rubbish station. So I don't know if we'd, have, if we'd won or not, but definitely didn't help us. So we were pretty quick. And then, I don't know, we had one guy, Toby Backhouse come from Cambridge. He was really strong and he was brilliant that year. He trained really hard. He really added to the group. We had a guy called Bill Latimer who came from the US who'd rode at BU and just came over to do a masters, was keen to do some rowing. And he got himself into the first day and basically he's raced three times at him They won three races, won the grand, and that's it done. Easy life. The rest of us lost loads of races. <laughs> One and done. You thought it was easy. No, we just got on really well. The crew clicked. We got on really well. There was some really strong guys in the boat and we had a lot of experience. So it was perfect storm really.
0: What, what is it about rowing that you said you still keep up with them today, your mates? I'll, uh, I'll tell you what, that you, crew is actually connected. What, what is it that you think I don't know, that
1: that crew is more important to us today than it was then because guys, we all have issues in our lives that we need help with or are struggling with. And actually um, coming back to guys. You really trust and believe in who you, you have confidence in. It's really important. So yeah, I don't know what it is. In fact, two of the guys who rode in the ladies play, whether well, it was the year before, are part of our WhatsApp group, my grand name. So there's 10 of us actually. So yeah, it's really cool.
0: It's the, it's the trust. So how's that built? Is it something about sharing the, the, the common pain, the, the struggles through training, the turning up in the morning? What is it do you think that? I think it's
1: because you see each other when you're really vulnerable mm. and you can trust them because they, t- they turn up and they produce. And there's something about that uh, bond. I'm sure it's the same in a lot of sports and we like to think rowing's really special, but they're going through adversity together and just putting on the line, you know, it also includes going out for beers and having nights like that as well, having some shared memories. It's both. Yeah. And then winning always helps, doesn't it? You, you tend to meet up with crews that win, not so much for the crews that don't, which is a bit of a shame.
0: I think it's probably often you're not winning all the races in the same crew, are you either? So you probably no. get some close calls or...
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. During that time, Adrian, were you, what were you measuring? What were you keeping an eye on? To go towards your goal. So about 88, 90, probably the first concept two, I, I think from memory were probably coming in.
1: Yeah. We had two, we had four at school and they were only for testing because they were too bad for your back to train, apparently. So we did exactly. some, we did the yeah, apparently, yeah, exactly. So we did six minute tests on those. So they were, and we do them twice or three times a year. So they were quite nerve wracking because you didn't know the machine. And it was a bit like we used to do for the British trials. where you do all the, the Jessing ergo tests. Mm-hmm. Those machines were brutal. And again, you only did them twice a year. So you had no idea of practicing, but they were a really good test. Actually, they didn't just reward strong people. They also reward, so sad to see them go. Cause I was quite good at those, not so good at the concept too.
0: Um, so, so you'd had the test, Boop Polar just come out then, I guess.
1: I didn't, we didn't use any heart rate. Even when I was, we were on the ground, we didn't use heart rates. Yeah. What did we measure? We did percentages, pieces like that in the water. We did have regular erg scores. We did testing ERGs and racing ERGs, 20-minute ERGs and that kind of stuff. And I guess the most of the tests, you were just side-by-side side with your mates in singles and pairs in the winter and just trying to beat each other. That was your biggest test.
0: Who was fastest? Pecking
1: order. Yeah. And could you wash people down and stick them up in the trees and push them in the bank and you know, all that yeah. kind of stuff.
0: The, the same mate that you won in the grand. Put him in yeah, the totally. Of course. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about that. Now, you had a, a pretty horrible accident somewhere along that line, I read, that you, you broke a neck and,
1: and Yeah. I was doing a Masters after ninety five and after the after the ninety six well I was the try to get into the Olympics team ninety six. And I got overtrained so I, was, I left the squad early. And I was doing a masters there and then on my stag night dove into the river from the table, pub table next to the
0: Angel pub at Henley
1: and I broke my neck. Pretty stupid.
0: My goodness. And what happened? Yeah. You, you woke up in hospital or what was?
1: What no, happened? I swam. A few of my mates were already in the in the river swimming. And then I swam back to the bank. And it's November. So I thought it was just a bit cold. And I couldn't really get out. So my mates lifted me out, ironically, and then put me on the chair. And you could see my legs were quite lame. So it was quite weird. And then they laid me down and actually dressed me, put a jumper over my head, all the stuff you really shouldn't do. Mm. Everybody did. And then the paramedics arrived and took me to hospital. So I was conscious. I'm sure I went in and out of remembering all of it, but I do remember most of it.
0: I was conscious for most of it. Mm. And um, were you paralyzed or what was... What
1: yeah, you... I was paralyzed from it. I had my arms still, but I'd lost everything that below that. And the fracture was high enough. It was C6. I really should have lost my arms, but they couldn't really figure out because the break was right at the base of my neck. Two of the vertebrae were broken and half the spinal cord was severed. But it's only the sensory half, so I was quite lucky. Not the motor side of this cord. But my neurology was really weird, because when they tested my neurology, it was T12. So that didn't really, nobody could really understand why that was. So I guess in that respect, I was pretty lucky. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I could only move my arms. My arms were quite weak. But I could still use them. And my legs, I couldn't move anything.
0: And what was the the story, the journey back to? I guess I
1: had scans at the Royal Berkshire and Reading. And they put bolts on my head and put me in traction, basically. And that was the treatment then. Nowadays they would operate on you and fixate your neck. But then when I went to St. Mandeville, they just put you in bolts and it was conservative management. They just let all the inflammation go down. And then, so I was in bed rest for 14 weeks, just being turned every four hours left to right. So I wouldn't get bed sores.
0: You must've lost a lot of muscle.
1: Almost
0: 24 kilos. Oh
1: bed. My goodness. Yeah, I was 95 and then I was 70 point something. I was almost lightweight when I got out. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> What's yeah. going through your mind though? And Because I'm guessing, but was rowing must have been a core definition of you or not up to
1: that. Yeah, well, it defined me 100% to the point where I probably should have worked harder at school, but I didn't because rowing defined me really. Yeah, I guess I, the first night I tried really hard. I was in this ward full of really old men. We are all having hallucinations and mumbling. And I was just lying there, just looking at the ceiling, trying to move my toes. And I thought I'd moved my toes, but I don't know, no idea. But I just tried that all night, really. And then, and I kind of decided that evening, if I could move my arms, then I could get myself around the place and I could wipe my own ass. And actually that would be, I'd be fine with that. And anything better than that would be a bonus, really. So I got my head around it really quite quickly. I don't know why. And then. Every day was just like trying to improve. I had an amazing physio woman, Laura, who was my physio. She was just amazing and I would not have been walking. I am now without her. Mm. She had quite alternative treatment. She was doing bow bath. She was coming to see me every twice a day and moving my body as if I was walking, like doing movement patterns. Mm -hmm. Because the theory was that that kind of physio, they use it for lots of stroke patients is that a lot of the memory from movement is in the muscles, not just in the brain. Mm. So by keeping the muscles working, it improves the chances, plasticity of my brain connecting. Yeah. So I'm sure I'm, and I've read some stuff since then. I'm sure that was a really big reason why I've
0: been all right. You You're in hospital for 14 weeks or longer? I've been
1: in hospital for six months. Six months. My goodness. My in bed for 14 weeks. weeks yeah. The rest of it was in rehab, basically in the spa in stone mandible.
0: And how long hospital? before you could actually walk again, which I think is incredible. You got to tell me how you figured out you could walk again.
1: Yeah. I don't know exactly when it was, it came really slowly. The, the big worry was that I'd have movement. I had quite a lot of movement before I left bed, but nobody knew if it would be functional or just mm-hmm. movement, but actually just over the week, slowly, I could get a bit more, a bit more, and she did all this treatment. I had to try and do a small step and she taught me how to walk again, which is actually ridiculously complicated. Walking is actually more complicated than rowing stroke, but somehow we just learn it naturally and I was trying really hard to walk in a certain way and I do remember a few particular instances, like there's one particular trying to get my right leg to swing properly and land on its heel properly, and it was just just like rowing it's trying to get the front end it's funny you get into things you just kept doing that and I got it just on the Friday afternoon before I went home for the weekend, like really frustrated all week, and it just clicked on the Friday afternoon and that's it was just it ended up becoming a kind a of rowing training camp to be honest hmm. in so many ways, so it was very familiar and did your mates from rowing come and see you and Sport. Yeah, it was, people were amazing actually. Like Dick Smith, who was the guy who was at school with me, he came every week and a few friends of mine came really regularly. What was really interesting was that the people who came and see me were generally the ones I rode with the university, not the ones I rode with the national team. Interesting. Yeah. And I think, yeah, because we weren't really a squad as it is now because we all were all different clubs and we were always competing to and then got together for a few weeks. Whereas now they are like a massive club. I'm sure that it's a different relationship they all have. Mm. But yeah, yeah, but it was an amazingly positive place though. and man will surprise things, it was four wards full of people who were paralyzed. It was, people were amazing. So much fun, really positive mindset. And how did you and keep I, your spirits up? I didn't have to, There were so, the whole place was so positive. Really? Yeah. And the hardest bit was because it happened in November, the hardest bit was after Christmas. Everybody came to the, you know, all my family, my wife's family, they all came hospital for Christmas and they had Turkey and all that kind of stuff. And then every just disappeared to go get on with their lives a bit. So for about two weeks, it was pretty hard. I said, every, I don't want a big Christmas because I don't want to make a big deal, but everybody did. And then it was a big come down after that. That was the hardest part for the first two or three weeks in January. Just yeah, quite flat. Couldn't do very much yet. It was just getting better on my own a
0: lot. And people came and saw me regularly. Still a lot of time on your own. After you recovered did you ever consider going back to rowing yeah i did
1: my wife was already pregnant with our daughter isabella by then by the time i came out and it didn't happen in hospital just you know and but, yeah and i did a bit Tried to do i just i'd started a job at cambridge university the day i left ho- hospital actually what was that so actually two days before actually I'd, i came out on the friday and I had to do, I had to present myself to all the college captains at Cambridge, because was, it was a new role the university had set up as a development coach. And then I had to go back, I drove myself back to St. Mandeville to have my final ward rounds and then drove myself back home and started work on the Monday.
0: So, so that was you know, the, your first job.
1: Yeah, it was, i was still thinking of rowing to try and go to Sydney. So I hadn't really planned my life at all. And I had planned actually to go to Cambridge to do the boat race and do that, but Suddenly I was coaching at Cambridge with my wife was pregnant. And she was teaching at Bedford school. So it was really strange. And I remember I, I, was very lucky at Cambridge, the people I was surrounded by, but Robin Williams said we can do the Erg session with these young guys from the, from the colleges They come into training. And I was standing there after about three minutes. I said to him, you're just going to have to take the session. Cause I just, I have no idea where to start. I don't know what to say. Never thought about coaching. I've, I know it's a row, but. I wouldn't know how to explain it to him. So I just listened to him, mm. how he started explaining it. And then just went from there. It really brave to take a chance to me because I couldn't even cycle a bike then. Mm. I couldn't walk, but I couldn't cycle a bike. And they took a chance on me, which was, I really appreciate that.
0: And what was your weight then?
1: Oh, by then I was back to 88 or 89. By then i put on 12 kilos in the first
0: two weeks, just by going
1: around the hospital ward all day on my wheelchair, just trying to get stronger.
0: So you were what, about 26, 28 when you started? By that time, how old was I then? No, I started to work the
1: same day as Tony Blair. so first of May, 97. So I wasn't 26. I was still 25
0: at that point. Cause you turned the big five this year, didn't you? I did. Yeah, I did. I did. It's madness. <laughs> anyway, so you're at Cambridge. You, you really haven't got a clue yeah. so to speak to begin with. What was the learning trajectory? It's like
1: exponential. And I was so lucky. You had Robin Williams was there, a the guy Ian Dryden, who's one of my best friends, and he he was there. Who was so good for different reasons. Donald Leggett, who'd been coaching there since '68. Harry Mann was on the coaching staff, and then Tim McLaren used to come for two weeks a year. So it was like it was the conversations that went on in the coaches' room were just astounding,
0: incredible. So yeah. Harry Mann, Tim McLaren, Robin Williams, and yeah.
1: And then Tola was there as well. So, so yeah, unbelievably lucky to have those people around to talk to about it.
0: So what were some of the, the key pillars of your rowing philosophy that you picked up, and from whom? You've got the goat. You've got uh, Harry Mann. someone <laughs> yeah, some yeah a great exactly of all time. Robin Williams, an ma- amazing educator of what it means to be a coach. I found from what I read as
1: well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah he was a really good as a boss and a mentor. at no, we're, we're, fr- we're really good friends now, but even, but then he was really good at helping me out, explaining stuff, how I should do things. He's a really organized sort of guy. So that was, just showed how important being organized was and planning everything and being on top of it. Harry was just amazing because trying to figure out why he, what he said worked, but he had really clear ideas in his mind and the way he, he communicated was very unique. I think lots of people listened to Harry coach and then tried to coach like Harry. So it didn't work had his own way of doing it and it came, a lot of it came from intuition. But I guess for me, Tim was the one that really set me up because the first two time he came for two weeks, when he left, I was, my brain was melted. i hardly understood a word he'd be talking about. Oh, is that because he's an Aussie? Oh, uh, no, not quite, no, <laughs> but because he was, he had very clear ideas. He had really clear, basic understanding of biomechanics and how you're supposed to set your body up to be aligned properly. To connect. He talked about some stuff that other people didn't talk about. Like he said, I'm using the inside hand to put the blade in the water and not the outside hand. But none of it seemed particularly controversial. But the best thing about Tim is he's completely consistent. He never alters his story. A lot of coaches will change what they say to suit their situation. Tim was consistent all the time. He would take me out on the launch. I sometimes say, Can I come on the launch with you? He said, Yeah, I get there. He gave me the megaphone, which was terrifying. Uh, but and then he'd talk to me about how I was coaching and how I was delivering my tone of voice and how you shouldn't, I was trying to get some guy to change something like his hand speed and he said, you can't do that because he's in the middle of an eight. He's 800 kilos moving, massive momentum. He can't change that. You need to stop the boat, talk to him about it, build it up from scratch, and then he can change it. So just little things like some things you can't change because of what's going on, because of the momentum of the system, some things you can, it was just really clever. So just challenged everything I did really. And then by the third year, I could actually have a proper conversation with him about stuff and put my input into it.
0: So Tim was coming in as a consultant coach
1: twice a Yeah, time. sometimes he came twice a year, but usually
0: once a year for two weeks. Yeah, And what was the intention of him coming over for two to four weeks a year by Cambridge? I think to bring a different voice in, a bit like they had Harry
1: as well, to bring a different voice in. He worked with the coaches quite a bit, so he improved the coaches. Not just helping them coach, but also... Conversations, the way you talk about selection is insight into athletes. You have to coach an engineering student differently than an art student. Engineering students are very linear and you can't talk to them about feel. You need to talk to them about thinking. Whereas if you're a coaching historian or something like that, you probably need to talk more about feel and less about thinking. And just styles of learning and all that kind of stuff. He brought the whole package really. Yeah. And it was also, it's good because you see the same athletes all the time. Having someone come in there and be quite critical, what's been done, what the training has been doing. It was just, and re- everyone was really open to listening. There was nobody taking it personally and the coaching staff. It was great.
0: It's a great mind approach from Cambridge. I'm not in, I don't fully understand it, but what I can hear from you is permanent coaching staff, but they realized that to advance the rowing, they need to also advance the coaching staff. So they'd be coached as well, totally. to coach the coach.
1: Totally. And you look at how many Cambridge coaches have coached for the British team and beyond, lots of them. They've done a great job over the last 20 odd years, 30 years doing
0: that. Because a lot of coaches are also, how did they take feedback?
1: The group was great. People did take it really well. And then the other coaches that came in afterwards just were the same, actually. They took it as well, which was great, actually. So I don't know how that that obviously was all set up before I arrived, how that culture arrived and why everybody was so open to taking criticism. It didn't mean it was always easy conversations.
0: No, it sounds like a real strong culture of growth mindset.
1: Yeah. Yeah, to- totally. hundred percent. And everybody's trying to get the same result. Mm. Uh, so everybody's working hard. And sometimes almost too. I remember Ian Dryden coming in one time and said, it's unacceptable for us as coaches to come in on our hands and knees. The athletes could come in on our hands and knees, but we can't, we're not any really good if we're tired, frustrated, angry. So we need to have a little bit more time off the old weekend, completely off. So we are useful when we're coaching. Mm. And. So we had to change the way we organize every time so we can make that happen. And it was hard to make a change because everybody thought, I'm gone for the weekend, oh, I want to contribute, but actually we was right. It's important to take some time off.
0: So how long before you were out coaching really on your own? In- I guess
1: when I was at Cambridge, I did the lightweight for a little bit on the side, Cambridge lightweights. And then in 2001, David Tanner approached me when I was coaching under 23 lightweight crew from extra people and he. They were starting on the Talent ID program in British Ryan, World Class Start. And he asked me if I'd like to be part of the program. They wanted to do a pilot scheme in Cambridge. with some clubs in the university clubs. So I guess I took that job and left Cambridge and stayed in Cambridge, but mm. I took that job on really.
0: When was that? What year was that? That was 2001. Okay. Because I remember the Australian Talent ID program started up around 96. They had one in 86, didn't they, before that? The women had done so badly and Peter Shakespeare set that one up,
1: did all the research with the three PhDs and everything and all the testing. And that's where the 96, was it 96? The women's pair that won in 96, that Paul Thompson Correct. coached. And the, yeah, uh, that came out of the town ID program. To the, yeah, that's right. Anthony, right. the two lightweights. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. The pocket rocket, which Tim McLaren coached.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And yeah, so, so I guess because Peter Shakespeare got the job as head of the town ID program, basically because his wife got a job with Sport England, so he was coming mm-hmm. over to the UK, uh, just coincidentally that job was available. He applied for it. He was probably the most qualified in the world. So British Rang was very fortunate that he turned up at that time. Mm-hmm. And he was the other coach who was massively pivotal in my coaching. shakes. what way? He just came with a completely different point of view. And we weren't supposed to be picking kids who were exceptional. That was what the deal was. We were supposed to, and We didn't always pick kids who were exceptional. but we. We found kids were exceptional. What and ex-
0: what, but what made them exceptional? What was the definition of listen This is the thing. We did the testing originally. It was just some physical tests.
1: So upper body strength, leg arm bike test to exhaustion, like a step test, but on a leg arm bike. And really the whole theory behind it was non-specific tests. So by testing people on the OG as part of a Town ID process, actually, you're gonna, it, it's going to help pick people who already rode. So they were def- deliberately non-specific tests They only tested toughness and physiology, basically. And I said to him, why are we only doing psychological tests? And he was a bit dismissive, actually, not dismissive. He said, we tried this, but 15, 16 year old kids, they're all over the place anyway. So you can't really guarantee that you get the right test on the right day. And actually he was right. The kids who do well on the bikes seem to absorb training better. Kids do well on the bikes also, because initially we thought the dyno test was more important, but we realized actually, no, it wasn't, it was the bike because they were tougher, they, they got injured less, they improved more quickly. The ones mm-hmm. with the big bike scores. Mm-hmm. Do you look at height and reach? And yeah, we did height on, but it had to be more than the height and the girls had to be 180 tall at school at 15. The boys had to be 189 was the minimum heights. So there's nothing, hu- they're not huge, but one boy. Charles Cousins, when we picked him, he was one eight nine one nine four R span. We picked him and by the time he left school he was one nine eight two twelve R span. My goodness. And he went from seventy eight kilos to one hundred and two and two and a half here. Great swimmer as well, wouldn't he? Oh well, he would is actually a actually good swimmer. He's done the Henley swim. He's quite a good swimmer. So we'd found two kids, but that's not the thing that made the kids good because there are loads of Bulgarians and Russians and American kids the same size. So that was the, when we went to interview them, because they got a letter saying, you're 1.1% of the population, you could go to the Olympics. And then two of us would always go and interview them with their parents and say, okay, we're well, not going to give you any money. We'll give you a coach to look after you. We'll give you an opportunity to train 10 times a week. And, and for me, the big thing was you can come and do it for six months because you may hate it. So you, just because we tell you, you can be good at something, we don't want you to feel bad that you want to quit. You know, because most people start the sport because they just fall in love with it. But here you pull your kids out of nowhere and telling them they could be good. It's quite a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. If they don't succeed, they could feel like it was their fault. Yeah. And the kids who really made it was just the ones who had the right mindset. They applied themselves to the training, became organized. Because the thing is you start with kids who have a mindset, it's come from their upbringing at home and their friendship groups and eventually all of that means that they haven't got the mindset to win the Olympics. So, first job is to get them to love the sport, and part of that's going quickly. So they're going, to they're improving, and they're going quite quickly. They they start to enjoy it, and then the next thing is you need to get them to change the way they think and do things.
0: What's that? What What do they need to change? Depend I mean, taking responsibility. Well, it
1: it is. They all have different personalities, but fundamentally, they have to. Be self-driven, and then be prepared to exploit the training program instead of just turning up. It's so like so for it Charles. It's a Gunther,
0: purpose, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, it does, and it has to be intrinsic. You can't mm. be telling them, and you can't tell them to be confident because that also doesn't work. They have to gain confidence internally themselves, and that just takes repeated success to do that.
0: Consistency. You know?
1: Yeah, and the success doesn't mean winning because you can't win when you're rubbish. But you have to improve and value improving as opposed to just valuing performing. And those are the kind of things you need to get into them quite early on. Because when they're young, they'll listen. And they think you, they understand that you a lot and they don't know anything. But as time goes on, you carry their bags and they know most of it, everything. And you just keep them honest.
0: The confidence that they can win and the humility to keep training and plugging it on.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's also, they don't win all the time, do they? Because they always summon people. So you, you always have that knockdown. And what was really weird with the camps is that you'd have, a, we'd have regular camps, with the whole of the British town, our system, we would meet in one place every month and we'd do a battery of tests to compare the progress of all the athletes. So it was massively competitive environment, but really, but we, it was like probably 30 tests that we've done over the weekend and everybody would be rewarded for succeeding, even if it was the biggest bench pool or the biggest, whatever it was. And they have to stand up in the crowd and stand up fully, not be embarrassed of being pulled out of the crowd, all that kind of stuff. Reward them for doing whatever it was they did really well, reward them for it. Um, and we, you'd have a month of great training, go to the one of these camps and they'd all be terrible. They get beaten and they've would terrible rows. And you'd have one month where they missed training for loads of school or injured or whatever, and then come to camp and they smash everybody just When they're that young and they're such a uh, precocious talent, they're not consistent. You you lose, get frustrated as a coach, but I remember Jurgen Grober saying to me, look, if they're the right guy or the right girl, then they'll make it. Just Mm. take your time.
0: How many people did you have in the program each year?
1: First couple of years I had about 14, which was way too many. We needed to get down to eight or 10. So I had one guy, Ollie Watkins, who helped me um, with some coaching. He was a guy I coached with the white and he was doing a, a PhD. So he came and coached a little bit. So that made it easier. And I had a mixture of junior kids and university kids in Cambridge. It was a really fun group actually, really nice. So we were, it was mostly eight to ten of us most of the time. I did to
0: that. the senior team?
1: Three of them went to the Olympic Games with my group and three? yeah, three from the Olympic Games and two others went to the Junior World
0: Championships. Little strike?
1: Yeah, it was pretty good. Was pretty, yeah, pretty good. I was there for three and a half years. So yeah, that was pretty good. Trying to get people on the team every year was the idea.
0: It's a world-class start. What next for you, Adrian? Where'd you, where'd you go? Then I, I, was, I did that. Then I was promoted a bit. So I was looking after a few centers, not coaching the co-
1: athletes directly, but coaching the coaches a bit. So I did that for a bit. And then I got asked to come and help run the sculling, men's sculling side for British Ryan. So me and Mark, we'd both come through the start program. So we were doing the men's sculling. And I just started doing that just after 2008. And then I got approached by Martin McElroy. If I'd like to try and do the Irish job. So I met him in a pub the BM six it. and yeah, exactly. And he just said, he, he said to me beforehand, if you could do the job, put it on a piece of paper from scratch, what would it be? So I wrote like two pages of the junior system under 23 system, the senior system, selection, stuff, all that sort of stuff. We discussed it and then I, I went over to Ireland, had an interview with a People from the board members of Irish rowing and got the job madness. Yeah. I, mean, I knew I was going to be away from home a lot. So
0: we had a lot of discussions at home,
1: but an opportunity I couldn't pass up. You might never get off of that sort of thing
0: ever again. What did you learn so, from that experience?
1: Oh, I had a lot. We turned up at the building where we we're going to center and we basically, we centralized the system for the first time. So that was a big cultural shock for everybody. And normally Irish rowing had be based around Dublin. And I remember my interview, I went up to Old Road, Dublin, in Blessington, and the lake's beautiful. The boat house was terrible. The dirty sand floors I just, and, it, and the traffic, one of the stories I've heard, traffic getting to and from Dublin was horrendous. The guys would drive out there for 40 minutes and then realize it was unrollable. Drive back in the rush hour at 10 a.m. and they hadn't trained yet and have to do two sessions and stuff like that. Whereas in Cork, there was this brand new boat house that really spent 6 million euros the Celtic Tigers' money to build this amazing facility on a beautiful lake. The two universities down there, it's like, perfect. So we just centralized it down there. We only had two guys to start off with, but by the time it came to London, the three and a half years later, we had 12 or 14 guys, girls training there. Mm. Just slowly, people did masters. They moved down. Some people went full time. They moved down. Now, Sunita, we helped her and her husband get school for the kids and find him a job and Get a flat, so they moved down from Dublin to live in Cork and moved their life down there. Really,
0: so the water was good at the lake. Clearly,
1: yeah, it could be rough at times, but there was a ha- only a dozen or twenty times in the whole three and a half years we couldn't actually row. It was amazing. Two K lake, and you could go twelve K one way, yeah, nine K one way, and eight K the other way. Fabulous. facility.
0: and how many people were? In yeah. the program, the Irish program.
1: When I turned up, there no, nobody returning from the junior worlds. Nobody returning from the 23s and nobody returning from the Olympics. Well, one guy, Sean Casey, turned up. He was in the four and he wanted to do the single. He was the only person back from all the three teams. Crazy. Um, and we just, and then my first day was April trials, where it was juniors, under 23s and seniors all at once. And I had to stand in front of all the coaches in Ireland and lay out
0: my cards what I was going to do.
1: So there was a lot of people in the room trying to wait
0: for what I was going to say. That's that's a uh, change management effort.
1: Yeah, it was. And we tried to be really just strict with the numbers, basically. There's the cutoff score for the ergo for trials. If you point one over, you don't make the cutoff. If you're ill, Ill and you missed the target cutoff, well, you should have told us you're ill before you did the ergo test. So you're still cut next time. Tell us beforehand and, and then we'll give you another chance and just general behaviors, and it didn't always go down, people were always very pleased about it, but so we had those really strict targets for people. And then we also had development weekends where anybody could come junior under 23 senior, all they had to do is prove to us that they'd done a half hour and a 12K org in the previous month to prove that they were training. And at the hand of the scores, no matter how terrible they were, they could come to the camps would be coaching times, if we have comparative testing against the best people, they would see where they stand and we had some about like 80 or 90 people come to those camps. So yeah, and I mean, the coaches could also come and we could work with the coaches and they would help us with the timing, running the camps and everything. And I really enjoyed those camps because it was open. And probably fun. Tried to make it fun as possible. Yeah.
0: Fun and competitive. So you've been coaching for about 15 years by then?
1: Yeah. By the time I finished in Ireland, it would be just over 15 years. Yeah.
0: So experiences with some greats, Harry Mann, Peter Shakespeare, Tim McLaren, Robin Williams, the yeah. list goes yeah. on. Yeah. And, t- and also, ha- and also working with Martin, in terms
1: of two of us working together to set up a system with some massive learning curve is great.
0: What would you say are some of your fundamentals in the principles of technique you now that you've titrated down from all those great minds and experiences and seeing how rowers move the boat. What would you say? I was, the thing I always found is that people got really
1: particular, about really small things. Like your finger over the end of the hand the oar, and stuff like this. And you look at all these great athletes and I remember having dinner one time with Melch Bergen, the Swiss coach, and he brought a bit of video. And I was staying in Switzerland when I was still rowing actually at the time. And Derek Clark, he came over. Where were you saying? He was in Zug.
0: Okay.
1: And he showed some video of the was 72, I think it was. And he talked about the right hand leading away from the left hand. It's from the, you know, from the back end, the right hand leading away. In the UK, we were very much left in front of right. And I was like, we're rubbish at sculling. So I went out the next day and tried it. I was like, oh, this is quite a lot easier. And then I watched the video and I was like, oh, every other country in the world, except for us and East Germany, does this. You now these Germans do right over left, we do left to front of right. And everybody else shifts which hands are in front, depending on whether you're pulling or recovering. So I was like, okay. So that was one thing that made me like, don't accept what you've been told. but look at what's actually happening and figure out what's really happening in the stroke. And with all these great coaches, the one thing that made a really big difference to me actually in Ireland was I read all of Valerie Klerzhnev's documents on his website.
0: Oh, the, all these bio row public. Animals. Bio road, Yeah. Fantastic. I went through all, yeah, exactly. I went through all of them and it's quite hard work. of that's quite complicated, the maths and stuff, it's quite dry.
1: And I really persevered with it. And, it and it really challenged my assumptions about what was actually going on on the boat. And you know, that, that really made me think, should you be coaching t- technique or should you be coaching skill? And it changed my mindset for me really, That you know, what's happening on the recovery really. Slide, every talks about decelerating the slide on the way forward. Porsche, isn't it? Because it's got to accelerate for the first bit and decelerate the last bit. And what we found is that really good people accelerate for almost the whole of the recovery and then decelerate really quickly at the end. But nobody says that, do they? They all say, take your time on the slide. And when you say, take your time on the slide, most people slide slowly instead of sliding quickly and sliding a long way. But both of them are taking time on the slide. So it's those sorts of assumptions, get your weight on your feet or backstops. It's one of the things Tim McLaren said, now, you can't get your weight on your feet from backstops. It's just, you don't, if you sit there still and do it, don't actually get any weight on your feet. You transfer your body weight from the bow of the seat, the stern of the seat. And then that center of mass moves closer to your feet. Yes. You don't move your weight onto your feet. But everybody
0: talks about it, don't they? So, what was Tim trying to get across when he said that? Do you
1: think he's very much all about fine movements? You know, don't talk about shifting your weight; talk about moving your mass. You don't want to, you don't want people to think about and feel and think about pressure, not weight, because pressure is much more finite and delicate, as weight's clumsy and cumbersome. Mm-hmm. So, just even just the nuances of the language can be really important, and that made me think quite a lot about what words I use when.
0: And to which audience, the engineer or the art student. Exactly. That kind of thing. So it, so it understands that understands you have to get to know your athletes before you can be much useful.
1: Yeah. So you're always thinking and talking to other coaches and trying to understand how they do stuff. And, and I guess one of the two big learnings for me in my coaching, one is stop coaching yourself. Cause you know, you start, I started coaching basically was reflecting from how i had been coached me because that's all I do. And then at some point, you start to realize, well, you know, I'm coaching people who are infinitely better than I was. I can do things that I can't do. So I can't explain to them what they should be doing because I've never been able to do it. You know, a guy can row 15 degrees further around the pin than me. I don't know what that feels like. So I have to create an environment where they can figure that out for themselves. And Peter Shakespeare's one big thing is never impose your limitations on other people.
0: Can you give us an example? Well, just, you, you,
1: you think something's not possible because you couldn't do it. So you can say that's, what you, that's too hard to do. And that, and that was one of the things I did in Ireland, actually, when I first arrived that first day, I put up the ERG scores for the junior trials. And it was something like for the boys, it was like, I can't remember, maybe it was 6.15 or something or 6.20 to be involved. And one of the guys pipes up. So you want our junior boys to be 45 seconds quick on a 2K ERG score? And I was like, yes. And i oh my God, it's impossible. I so, well, every other country in the world does it. So that doesn't mean somebody here can't do it. And by the time I left, they were like 38 seconds quicker, the best junior boy. And I hadn't coached a single one of those kids. I hadn't written a single training program for those boys and girls. The coaches had done all the work, but purely because the bar was set high. Some kids were like, oh, I can't do that. And they quit. And some kids go, oh, brilliant. That's what you have to do. And they achieve it. They rethought what was yes. possible. Yes, or, the, or the, the, the right, just the right people achieve it because they have the right mindset. So by setting the bar at the right level, the right kids appear, boys and girls.
0: I was listening to an interview with Iliud Chipkolgi, the man that right. broke the, the first man to break two hours on the marathon. Yeah. And it was centered around no human is limited.
1: Project Nike or whatever it is, yeah.
0: And believe more in our own capability. And, yeah. You know, I was thinking that too last weekend, took some kids down to Gavarati in Italy, and you're sitting there with the national squad and they're doing 40 times one minute on one minute. And they got off the water and they're beaming, smiling, and they, in the afternoon a session and they back up the next day six times 12 minutes at uh, 88 World's Best Time. And yeah. My goodness, it really is redefining that there's a lot of work that needs to get there, but... Uh, at yeah. that point, they're still 19, 20 years. They're in a boat on a piece of what, what's going on. The coach is giving them belief and he's giving them all the space and the guidance to, yeah. to get there.
1: I remember that, that was the, the Charles Cousins, I remember. after about four or five weeks of coaching him, one of the town ID kids. I said, so what do I need to do to make you give up? Is that what do you mean? Yeah. Well, he said, if you make it inconvenient. what does that mean? If you asked me to train at 10 o'clock at night, I wouldn't do it like, well, you're, you're 15 and you've been running for six weeks. Of course you wouldn't do it. But two years later, we were coming back from the airport and just won under 23 bronze medal and, the, and I said, do you remember this conversation? I was like, no, I don't remember that. And I said, do you, if I said to you, you need to do an hour tomorrow, and night, would you do it? Yeah. And at that point he knew he was all right. Cause he was, he'd taken control of ownership of this whole thing. He would do whatever it was required. And there's all the balls in this core, He just needed the right people around him to help him.
0: How did you balance the results from water and land and testing? You said in the world class start, then you moved through to Ireland. You had very clear cutoffs point, you know, o one of a second round. How did you balance all that with then performance on the water? Because clearly there's people, look at the winner of the single skulls this year, the Olympics, he's not pulling a huge score, is he? He's still sub six. Yeah, still sub six. still beating the world's best. How did you find that balance in your coaching, Andrew?
1: I think that this, as a head coach, the, the standard that we set for them to come to trials and carry on in trials for some people seemed really high, but it really wasn't. Under twenty-three athletes putting six ten, most under twenty-three athletes worth their salt can do that. So we weren't excluding people of any size particularly. But then, as we went, once people were got through the trials process and were in final trials and stuff like that, the O was purely a mark of improvement. At that point, it was how fast were you in the boat that all the that You know, Didn't matter how big your O-score was, if you lost a seat race, I didn't really care. But you needed to, have a, you had to have a minimum physical standard to become part of the group. And then obviously with the lightweight guys we had, when we were there, it wasn't a very strong physical group. There were some really guys who were really good technically and really good racers. And they got, they just missed out on a medal in 91 in the quad. They caught a crab and just missed out on their medal. So they were there or thereabouts, without having great physiologies. And the two of those boys ended up being the lightweight pair of Donovan and I've forgotten his name now. It's really bad. they will come back to me. Yeah. So they went after I left. They carried on the pair and won the pair a few times. And they didn't have. But then someone like Paul Donovan comes along, who even as a junior at rate twenty-eight, who pulls six fourteen, you know, seventy-eight kilos or whatever. You knew they was going to be a rock star. Mm. You I know, came uh, both a single twice, the junior world. Either. Yeah, yeah, I've I never asked him why he did that. But actually there was some video of one of the Luini and another lightweight double and the barman did the same thing. Saw that recently, actually. It's quite funny.
0: Now, I read in an interview that you, you were talking about the valuable lesson of continuous measurement. I think we've covered that and how this mindset of testing, where are you against your goals? I'd like to yeah. back up and talk about Goal setting, it's clear that world champions, Olympians have very clear goals and they're working towards those. How involved were you in setting them and defining them? With the- Oh, loads. In the beginning, when they're younger, you have to set them
1: for them a bit, but then you also, I, I deliberately set them so they were really achievable. So they would keep achieving their goals and improving and all that kind of stuff. So in the beginning, you set them so that they achieve them as much as possible. And then as time goes on, they start to become more stretched. And then they start to have more input as to what they are. And they start off with the things like, oh, I want to, you know, go down to 23s or I want to do this, you know, the problem. And, but actually teaching them like, well, actually we put 620, let's try get 618 or 617. That's your test, but that's only every few months. Now you're doing an, an ERG every week. You're not going to get better every week. So how long is it going to take us to improve? And the thing, one the tests for me that were quite interesting were the half hour test, right? 20, because it's a tough test and you get phases where people would improve three or four weeks in a row. And then what I learned is that if you kept pushing that, of course, then eventually they wouldn't improve, but then they would get quite down. They didn't improve. So I, I found that they improved a few times. And again, judgment wasn't always right, but maybe the next one I say, okay, you just did 150 for your half hour. That was a PB. And they come back next week. I said, this one, 151. What do you mean? But I, I, I can, I did, I want to go better. No, this week, I don't need to go flat out. i need to go a bit slower than last time. Just do the training. And they probably would have pulled that split if they tried to go pick up PB because you can't, it's exhausting to keep pulling PBs. Your body's doing stuff it's never achieved before. They keep doing that too much, just, they just run out of steam mentally and physically. Mm. So, I think it's important to balance that as well. They're not, they're not always trying to improve.
0: So, it's part physically, of the planning, right. isn't it? It's the progressive yeah. overload. Is, and that's where the coach, I guess, you're giving them the guidance over time, the wisdom. Yeah. Three, four months, let's target yeah. this. Let's see exactly. how you're going. Check in. I'm yeah, going to come that'll... to how Luden plays a, a key role in that in a moment. Okay. I, I still want to dig into a few other things, if I may. You've seen a lot of successful rowers and Sunita is an amazing athlete. What do you think it is that these highly successful rowers consistently do? Is there a habit or behavior that you've observed that's consistent with very successful,
1: they turn up every time, which sounds ridiculous, but they do turn up every time and they don't just turn up and train and go home, they turn up and get yeah, the most they can out of every session. You know, they have a clear understanding of what they're trying to achieve in that session. And, but they're also just, they're, they are so tough you know, no matter what's put in front of them, they will do it. And that's why you can, that's why some of the coaches get away with bullying athletes because they'll do whatever they're asked really, pretty much. Um, if they think it's sensible reasonable. and reasonable, and they're also they really have a massive appetite to take criticism and want to improve. They're just, they never stop wanting to improve no matter how unpleasant some of the feedback might be or how badly they did something and how direct you can be with them. If the relationship's right, you can be really direct with them. Mm. And of course they don't like it, nobody likes it, but they accept it and they think about it and they come back and do something about it. And they're just relentless with that mentality, to be honest, you know, and, and they've got an engine and they know how to row those two are given, but there's plenty of people who've got an engine who can row, and don't succeed.
0: Sounds a lot like mindset then. A lot of, Yeah. Yeah. i uh, a huge- tenacity. hundred percent. Your brain controls your physiology and your performance. Absolutely.
1: And the emotions
0: yeah. and everything. Yeah.
1: Well, and yeah, and that's the bit I loved most about the coaching actually was working with athletes to change their mindset so that they had the, the mindset where they were autonomous and interdependent with the people that need it to be
0: do you think that actually under building the capability in the athletes so they understand the purpose of the workout and they can start to think for themselves and why they have to be so precise why they have to actually switch off when they finish the workout and go recover yeah and then back up how important is that 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 capability for this autonomous thinking very important but it's also you have to be
1: slightly careful the other way because some people are really particular and then they get too bogged down in the detail and too, you know, everything's a failure because I didn't achieve it perfectly. It's that difference between don't let, you know, good get in the way of perfect. You know. Try really hard. Try and do your best all the time. Knowing that your best offer isn't good enough. But you just have to keep ploughing away. Chipping away at the chipping away, yeah. And just getting yeah. and taking your rewards. And there are periods of time where you feel like you're not getting anywhere. Yeah. And that's quite hard and they have to, I think that's a problem in our sport. I think we need to do something about that. I think we don't measure enough. So we just say, oh, it's all right. It's just money in the bank. That's brilliant. And nobody What's knows the money in the bank. The yeah, nobody knows this money in the bank. It's just, <laughs> it could be bullshit, isn't it? But there's, there's a bit of toughness to it as well, isn't there? Just being unreasonable and getting the training done is also quite important. I think that's what Jurgen and people like Mike Spracklin do. Sometimes their training is unreasonable. But actually that's purely between the ears, it's nothing physiological.
0: What advice would you give a young rower aspiring to make an, a national team? And what advice should they ignore?
1: Ignore.
0: advice I give them is
1: enjoy it and make friends first. Stop don't worry about rowing for your country just yet. Because when you get to there it's not fun. You know, it's rewarding and hard work, but it's not fun. It's not like when you're rowing school with your mates or at university. It's really hard and it can take some of the joy out of it, but that you are trying to achieve something pretty exceptional. So it doesn't come for free. Exactly. Yeah. So you have to be prepared to take and be aware of the environment you're going to when you grow full time, or maybe not full time because not every country grows full time, but when you want to do it seriously, be aware of the environment you're setting yourself up for. It's not, it's a really hard environment and it's unrelenting and it it will spit you out if you're not good enough and there'll be your care. Because every, and they're not because they're being unkind, it's just that the train rolls on, you know, and the best people stay on the train, and that's what the systems were built for. So, if you're not prepared to tolerate that, then don't do it. So, and what would you advise for Tom not to take, not to believe that they're really good? You know, people blow smoke up their eyes, particularly when you're younger, this you're really talented, you like, don't believe any of that shit. There's, there's always somebody more talented than you somewhere. But it's just, and it was, it was it Seb Co who was like, I know athletes who are more talented than me. I know athletes who work harder than me. But I don't know anybody who does both more than me. And I think that's the key thing. You've got to be talented, otherwise you can't make it, but can you do the work properly? That would be the defining point.
0: I was speaking to Cameron well, Mackenzie-Mahag the other week and he said the key trait in an athlete he sees is just consistency. Doesn't matter it. Yeah. they just, but they work smart.
1: Yeah, but it's hard to do. That's really hard. Jürgen Grober was, I was one thing I learned from him was whenever they lost and they would come back to training, a lot of coaches would be like, get the sports psychologist in, get the physiologist. where's the nutritionist? What physio do we need? And Jürgen would be like, we're going to do a bit more mileage. We're going to row a bit longer. We're going to keep the rate down. We're going to lift more weights. And just it goes back to all of the basics and do the basics better, which is actually the hardest thing to do.
0: It is. Is the, yeah, the hard work is the work everyone else is not prepared to do, the foundations. Totally, Something. and that's what makes the difference. Mm. Now, Adrian, shift focus a little bit. I can see on one wrist you have a black band, and on the other wrist you have a Garmin watch.
1: A yes. Card. I'm just testing the Whoop to see what I think. And the Garmin watch obviously can measure my, once a day, a bit of exercise that I do.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I guess one of the, obviously I set up Ludum as a business, but the, the thing that motivated me was actually when I was in Ireland, I was trying to collect all this data from all, all the clubs all so the training they would do, and people would send me spreadsheets and commas and semicolons and have to reformat it all. And it just took hours just to get the data in the right way to see it. And it's nuts, isn't it? Because you do, a two KO test and you would get I split every 400 or something, or every 500, depending on what they did. And a 2K score, and yet they've taken 200 strokes. So you lost all the granularity and you go on the water and nobody's really measuring the speed and nobody's really measuring. We did I didn't use heart rate even then, to be honest. Yeah. And it's just like, there's so much information that we're not gathering. So what coaches tend to do is gather what's easy to collect, what they're used to. And spend an inordinate amount of time typing in numbers into spreadsheets and looking at them, instead of maybe trying to figure out what actually should we be measuring. And then even if it's difficult, find an easy way to make that measurable and an easy way to get the data in a way that coach can analyze.
0: But do you think the coaches are aware of what they really need to catch and measure, first of all? No,
1: not at all. There's no education in any country or world rowing about data.
0: Is that why you set up the, the Rose Conference?
1: Yeah, exactly. We, we, yeah, that's exactly why we did it. Just to get, just one day, get people together, get people from different sports and different insights to come and talk about loads of different stuff. No, no agenda, just give people more information they never had before and try and help coaches upskill themselves and become aware of new things.
0: Because I think it's, it's weird, you mentioned it before in our chat, a lot of the coaches and i see it here in switzerland i don't know what's going on in australia because i've been there for a while but they're teaching what the athletes they catch the data that they used to have to give their coach and it's really basic yeah. now they're not looking at blood lactate they're not looking at heart rate they're not looking at power on the erg and me yeah and world's best time it's all a little bit old-fashioned and then when they centralize it it's all sent in on a spreadsheet and some poor soul has to calculate manage that. 500 yeah. results and it doesn't need to be that way. No, it doesn't, but the, the coaches' awareness is pretty low. So the, you've got a passion for teaching people and you've had a lot of people influence you in yeah. data points. So yeah. I'm guessing that the conference is what to upskill coaches.
1: Yeah, it is to make people aware of some of the stuff that they may not be aware of, whether they're not because national governing bodies, coaching stuff is not trying to be critical, but it's quite basic and it's, you know, in Harry Mann's words is that it gives you more information, but doesn't make you a better coach. That's one thing he said to me, once we looked at my awards thing, it's like, it's all the stuff's right, but it doesn't make you a better coach.
0: Hmm.
1: And, and also, yeah, exactly. And the coaches who make it are generally the ones who are self starters. They go and look for the information. They ask questions. They, they don't think they know it all as opposed to just reading books and just regurgitating it. But I think also there's just, The technology is getting better and there is a real danger of collecting too much information doesn't help as well. So you need to be careful, not just to collect everything because you can, but trying to understand what it is that matters and how to manage the data. One of the things that people don't really do very well is measure improvement. Mm. They measure performance. Now, what was your 2k? Oh, it got a bit better than last time, but actually how much better have you got over the last six months? Was your rate of improvement quicker than... The other people in the team were worse. And actually a lot of them measure improvement on the ergo on time, which is rubbish because it's not linear. You have to do it by wattage, but but people, a lot of people don't do that. So it's little little basic things like that. And of course, there are plenty of people who do do it like this properly. But by and large, people have spreadsheets that aren't structured. You ask them to show you some data. They say, I've got the data and they go in and they spend 10 minutes trying to figure out which folder it's in and which tab it's in and So it's not very accessible and it's a bit simplistic.
0: So what what are you going to focus on in this year's conference? And for those of you listening, this is not an ad, I'm actually really curious because if you're you're giving, it it sounds to me like you've got two halves to your intention here. One is to, to help people capture the data and the right data in a way that they can easily interpretate. Doesn't give them the analysis, but it helps them to analyze what's going yeah. on. And then in the coaches conference, you're lifting their capability in unders- to then understand that data. Am I getting it? And, the,
1: and then we also have three streams. We have a theme for the conference usually every year. And There's always three right. streams. One of the streams is always technology. So we have talked about, we have people talking about biomechanics or physiology or so you have recovery paper coming you- Yeah, Connie's coming this year and she's going to talk about some stuff and then the then we took two other streams. Like last year, we, before COVID, we had one about menstrual cycle for women this year. One of the ones is about athlete wellbeing, mental health, and we'll how to manage that. And we're having athletes and coaches talk, and we're having scientists and athletes speak in that stream. And then we've had streams about equipment, timing systems. And this year, the other stream is all going to be about, I can't remember now. That's pretty bad. I can't remember now. That's terrible. But we basically. The idea is people can find stuff that interests them. And the whole conference is not about technology. It's just part of it. Mm-hmm. And our keynote speakers are going to be, we're going to have Medi Corey come at the beginning he he's a used to row. He's one Henley, but he coached the Dutch sprint cycling team and he does some work with the Swiss rowing team in terms of the training programs. So he's got a really interesting mix of ideas, you know, so just getting those sort of insights come in as well. Just be interesting for people, I think.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think I've learned a lot from the cycling. Ingo Samalan who's a, a cancer research guy out of Colorado, but he coached the Tour de France champion.
1: Yeah. You know, and maybe. talking about
0: wattage and aerobic systems and mitochondria and what's yeah, exactly what, and, and what's nonsense and what, yes. what counts and power. Okay. So you're upskilling the coaches, you're giving, get, getting them more capability. And then let's talk about Ludum, which is a way of capturing athlete data easily versus managing spreadsheets and WhatsApps and photographs of screens, et cetera. So tell yeah. me a little bit more about that. And I would guess there's clubs that that makes real sense for, right? When you're balancing a lot of athletes, but there's a lot of masters rowers that are just paddling on their own. Yeah, I guess
1: it's, it, 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 lockdown was interesting because a lot of clubs, because people are very secretive about the programs and lockdown was interesting. Suddenly clubs were creating Strava groups so they could all see each other's training because they're in isolation and suddenly they were happy for the data to be quite public. Hmm. And I guess the thing we're trying to do with Ludum is that within your club, so it's all within your club, you can all see each other's training and your training and try and record everything because you speak to coaches and they you say, what training did you do this year when your crew won? And they just give you the training program. So that's not what people did. People have missed sessions for illness. You even go out rowing in the eight and the bar, and then the man and stroke man would have done a completely different training session. Some would have pulled harder than the other. So the accumulated difference in training is vast
0: and nobody's really paying attention to it. Are you seeing any macro data points coming out of some of your Luton training data of compliance to training? So you said well, the general population, 90% compliance, 80% compliance. We can't see anybody's data. So I don't know what's going on in the club,
1: Okay, but we work with some of the clubs. We work a bit with Cambridge women. And what was very clear was that before lockdown, the, the, the girls who did the training made the blue boat. So it's probably the girls who recorded the training did the blue boat, because I would have said that they probably all did most of the training. How much data they uploaded was not some girls uploaded five hours in the whole season and someone had done 450 hours. So they'd all probably done nearly 450 hours, but the people who complied with uploading the data had performed better,
0: Interesting. which was, a,
1: which was, a, yeah, exactly. And it just shows a mindset, doesn't it? They're paying attention to what
0: they do. They care about measuring what they're seeing. The details. Yeah, exactly. So I know that I know it because it's been Noel Donaldson presented it at the world rowing conference that. Some years back, I think a lot of the teams using training peaks mm-hmm. and that helps them to actually, I used to use it in the past cause it helped me to capture the data, but what I think there's a gap that you've filled is that's very good for the athlete and yeah. you can maybe as a coach, look at multiple athletes, but you can't compare it to rowing specific data points like meters per second, time against world's best time yeah. and moreover, you there's no way on Training Peaks and other software, Garmin, Polar, Fitbit, Sunto, where you can actually form crews and set crews yep. up on what seat you're in and what boat you're doing and what your session will be because the other software is a Sojin. So I think that's a real plus in my mind with regards to yep. the fact that you can communicate with the athlete. Are you finding any national do you have any national crews that are using it?
1: Yeah, or we, we do. We actually do, do yeah we do bespoke stuff for like the German and the Australian team we've actually they've got their own devices, so we've actually captured the data from their device and then giving them specific reports that are private to them
0: like the mighty max or whatever the the
1: mini the mini max yeah try right, that sort of thing and and they also want to see data in specific ways that are to their advantage, so that's secret to them really so we do yeah, you know, we do have national teams quite a lot of national teams using it as well as clubs and it tends to be the more serious clubs that do it and I agree that when we started building, we were like, why didn't nobody do this before? But actually, it's been quite hard to do, trying to do all the team stuff and aggregate the data. And then one of the things we've really tried to do is a bit what you're saying is actually on any given training session, being able to see everybody's training in one place who spent too much time in the red zone in that steady state session. And they all the, you get a group of kids together, the youngsters go, oh, I wasn't pushing hard enough. And maybe some of the older ones, you're working too hard. But then also be able to aggregate that over a period of a month or six weeks or whatever period of time and just see, oh, these 10 people did about the same number of hours, but actually these two people did most of it in the red zone. Guess what? They got ill.
0: So is, are you giving enough analytics? I'm not saying analyzing the data, but enough analytical yeah. points to show that, um, training overload or training load specifically?
1: Well, that's something we really working at the moment because we're using the Australian tier two score to try and measure training load and Australians have been really big on it, but only ever programmed to it, never managed to collect the data towards it. So we're starting to do that for everybody, not just for them. And I think what's starting to become interesting is the ratio between your seven and 28 day load, mm-hmm. you know, if your ratio just is over kind of of acute. Acute training. training. Exactly. Yeah. So if your weekly load is higher than your monthly load by more than 1.4 or five, you're in danger of getting ill or injured. And if you're below one, you're probably not improving. And we, we still haven't done, we have that's not a feature we've built yet. That's something we're just going through the data at the moment to try and see how does that correlate the rate of improvement? And there is some research on RPE showing those sort of ratios. Might be right. a
0: perceived exertion. Effort. Yeah. That's right.
1: Yeah. And again, they get again, that rewards. It's hard to get your, five, your seven day over your 20, your chronic one. If you're a consistent trainer, if you're a consistent trainer, your seven day, your 28 day are quite similar.
0: Unless you're consistently training too hard. Yeah, but there's
1: only so hard much you can keep doing that for until your average for your 28 day catches you again. Yeah, fair enough. And then when you get to that point, if you are going too hard, your seven day will disappear because you'll have to be sick.
0: (laughs) Mm. And the it's, so you've, you're doing this based on what percentage of heart rate? Yeah, we do heart rate. It's imperfect
1: because heart rate's obviously dependent on a lot of things, hydration, rest nutrition, temperature, but it's cheap. We're afford to have a heart monitor and it's pretty close. It's good enough. And it's good enough. It's good enough. That's for, for a big picture stuff. It's good enough.
0: I think I, I read a, a, article publication by Professor Seiler, who said that the, the trifecta of measurements is Watts, RPE and heart rate. Yeah, that's and really you, well put. And in you energy. get those three together and roughly you hit the sweet spot of Oh, well, that was hard. Oh, it was about 95% of their critical power and their heart rate was at about 93% as well. So yeah. it all yeah. evens out. It? It's
1: when they don't, when they're not right, and when the heart rate's low and the power's low and the RP is high, then you have to have a conversation with the athlete, that's why I think people want this one data point, but that just doesn't exist. The data gives you content to have a better conversation, ask better questions. That's all it does.
0: So you, you're through and i guess most people listening to this podcast or watching live will will have a whoop or a fitbit or a polar garmin etc i use a garmin it uploads syncs to ludum, so you're catching all that data in a rowing specific software solution the coach can yes. program your training they can see how you're complying yep, exactly. do you give them any indicators alerts to this Athlete is not doing the sessions, or this one's overtrained, or is that when the Rowers Conference comes in and the education of the coach? Yeah, that's we, we don't want to tell people what's going on
1: because I think it's too nuanced. Yeah, it's very easy to say, Oh, that person went too hard, that was too easy, or they it's you don't know what's going on in their lives, you don't know why you may have decided on the day to do something different and not put it into the system. So we try not to give people answers, we just create an environment where you can record the data from the sources you want, and then see the data more clearly in front of you and give them a few alerts. Like we have a, a widget on the dashboard when you do an ergo session, So when the guys finish their erg, and they click the, the app to the PM five, they do the erg session, it automatically uploads. And we'll just post up saying, Johnny just went 3% better and Mary went 2% slower on that session compared to the last time they did it. So just fleshing, just popping some stuff up, highlighting the coach, things that have just happened. For them so they don't have to keep looking for what's happened
0: okay and that's through the app
1: yeah it just does it automatically Yeah, on the website you'll get when you log into the website you have a list of all the athletes that improve they've got worse on the erg session you just did and you can just go oh how come he was eight percent lower Mm. and then we have a report where you can go look at it more properly and you can see the average improvement on the session and the maximum improvement and all that kind of stuff
0: okay and are you tapping into some of the australian institute of sports now, world's they've got the world's best times, and then they've got who's the sports scientist that developed their own school? Tony Rice. Tony Rice. Tony Rice. Yeah, yeah.
1: We work with Tony on the stuff that the Australians do, but we we don't use any of their stuff like that. We use the T two stuff because that was published and it's open, so it's not a secret for them. Uh, and the Australians generally are pretty good actually. When they do research, they make most of it public actually. Yeah. The institute's always been very good at that actually.
0: So, what's, what's um, the benefit of, of the Australian? You've got some T2 stuff. What's that going to give you the other uh, stuff.
1: I think the, the thing that's really good about it compared to the TSS score, well, which training pinks gives, mm. is that, you know, TSS is it's probably fine if you're doing long, steady stuff, but when you do medium intervals, three, four, five, six minutes, the heart rate lag is quite it's quite pronounced. So it actually underestimates the load of the session. And the way that Tony's devised it, he's... The, the, Basically, the higher up the training zones you go, the more the multiplier is. So if you're in the top zone, you multiply it by nine. Whereas if you're in the bottom zone, you multiply by one. That's to try and account for the non-linear aspect of your heart rate. And then also they've done some work realizing that ergs are more difficult than cycling. So also an hour on the erg is harder than an hour on the bike. Thank so there's, there's also yeah, Exactly. <laughs> and that's why that also moderates the score. So that's why I think it's slightly better than trim. It's yeah. basically the same as trim, but we just- it's more exponential in the way it measures what you've done and it's more sports specific. So I think it's slightly better.
0: So how do people get into it? They just go to com. They just sign up and they
1: look around inside it. It's quite daunting initially cause it's quite complex. And then they, they just get in touch with somebody on our team. We'll give them a demo and explain them how it works. And then we, we try to work with people as we onboard, because it does take a while to figure out how to do it. And it's a big step from going away from just using a spreadsheet that's and people are busy and they find it hard to change what they do. And they tell athletes to change their behavior every day. But actually coaches find it very hard to change their behavior.
0: Yeah. Now's the time to do it, isn't it? While you've got over the winter months, probably get into it so you can start to manage things a little bit. And we've yeah. we've been going for a while, mate. So I want to, get some, to get, <laughs> go to But I really enjoyed this. It's been, you watch, you watch Martin cross. He's yeah. a great, serious, oh, he's great, really great videos. He's fantastic. Yeah. You He's so good with people when he interviews yeah. them. Yeah. You could bottle that passion. You could sell mm-hmm. it. If you could only have one piece of rowing equipment, wise man, what would it be? It Ro- has, to, has to be rowing equipment. Oh, exercise equipment. Okay. You're I'd, a have, I'd, say a ref- I'd say a reformer. Ah. Yeah, a uh, Pilates reformer, Pilates. I'd say. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I had them in Ireland for the rowing team. It's the only bit of equipment I didn't have to tell athletes to use. They would just go to it and do their program. I think it's good for a mount busing from balancing your muscles and making you not get injured. But for rowing equipment, I'd have my single, I think. I have to go out of my single.
0: Percy Cerati, the old running coach in Australia, used to love the reform Pilates. Oh, really? Yeah. I think rowing, because we're so one dimensional, aren't we? We're always yeah. pulling and sitting
1: rolled over. Yeah. It's not very good for you.
0: What are your go-to strength building exercises that you, you don't need a program or something, you're just going to the gym or you're advising someone. What, what do you go to first?
1: I just do squats, bent over rows, and power clean. I think if I do those three, they're great. Squats is always important, is yeah. Particularly for men, leg, leg strength is a big predictor of performance. Yeah.
0: Uh, and then women
1: upper body strength. So bent over row,
0: really important. Yeah. It's really important as we get older too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 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 What, what's the favorite uh, workout you'd, you'd like to give to athletes to get that boost in performance, They maybe they've hit a plateau. What would you uh, prescribe?
1: I used to do one. It was, it was five minutes on, four minutes off, four minutes on, three minutes off, three minutes on, two minutes off, down to one, and then you finish. And you have to go absolutely max out on the five minutes and have the rest for four minutes and try and go max out again. Open rate. Get slow. Oh, open rate. Yeah. Mm. And then you get slower the first, next two, and then two minute, one minute, get faster again, you split increasingly again. And just, and it's just miserable. (laughs) We did do the hour of power a couple of times, which was pretty horrible.
0: Do you do that at a set rate or do you just say, go
1: No, we had free rate actually, but they're 26, 27 most of the time. But I found that they can't do it on their own. A few guys who did on their own, it's tough guys that would stop. And even, they even drove home and it's, I'm really angry. Went back and tried to do it again and stopped again. It's very hard. I think you do, it in, like you do it in a group. You can maybe do it twice, maybe three times a year. Max. That, that's about it. Cause and it's good. You're going well-motivated you. to go in and do everything. Yeah. And fresh. You can't be in a really deep part of your program.
0: But you get a very clear measure of your critical power after that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's really it. it. It is what Yeah. It is. And
1: also they come up because they're doing a groove and you've got some music, actually it's amazing how aggressive people are towards the end when they're trying to ramp it up. It's, it's really good all round session.
0: Is there any new rowing gear that you're looking at testing? You've got the whoop. I, I think the thing we're missing in rowing is having an
1: objective measure of the change in acceleration of the boat when people are rowing. I think people realise that if you row properly on the recovery, the boat doesn't really decelerate for most of the recovery if you get it right. But really, the boat should only start decelerating 70 or 80 percent of the way through the stroke. But we have no way of quantifying that.
0: And oh, we don't have a way to pressure on the stretcher. Yeah, exactly. But then, even then, it's not live. Go and look at it afterwards. No, you can't. You speak to Connie about her foot stretcher plate uh, measurements. They would be good. to if we can make them practical, Yeah. they would
1: be really good. That would be a bigger step around we can measure that instead of the gate practically. It's that'd very hard to sit
0: up and there's a lot of faffing around. And if you don't set it up, you're just measuring it wrong. And it's like cycling, pedals, strain gauge. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: But even then in cycling, people will say, oh, power measurement's accurate. No, it's not. It's comparable, relative. You know, two different pedals would be slightly different.
0: Got to count. Doesn't right it matter, a doesn't matter. Better it. temperature.
1: Yeah. It doesn't really matter as long as you can compare it. I think if we put pressure stretches in the rowing boat, even if we just measured amplitude of pressure without giving you wattage, it would be useful.
0: What is the book or books you've gifted most? I always forget
1: the name of this book. It was one that Martin Cross gave me when I was rowing with him. On, is it on the line, it's about two, it's a story in German, in, East Germany, in Holland actually, translated into English, but it's two boys, one from the good part of town, one from the poor part of town, comes to this rowing club, they end up rowing with each other, war breaks out, they win the championship, war breaks out and they never see each other again. I'll try, I'll, I'll give you the thing, we can put it on the, com, on the comments if you want, but it's a great story. It's not about rowing per se, but it's about the people in rowing and what rowing fight. Mm. Yeah. Really like powerful
0: that. lessons in there.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: When you look back at your, your life and everything you know now, all that experience, with those great coaches, and you go back to, uh, 18 year old Adrian. What would you, what advice would you give yourself? I would give
1: myself, don't dive into the river when you stagnate would be the first thing. And I guess. It's pretty good. I think the main thing I would have been would just try and do things better. Just pay attention to the detail a bit more when I was younger. Instead of just, you know, it was a bit more like, I just turn up and do the session hard and try and do it as well as I could, but I would just always try and be too ambitious for what I was doing instead of being
0: a bit more processed. So I'd say that's great advice. Great advice. We can all take on board. And finally, is there anything that I haven't asked you that perhaps we should have talked about?
1: I think we covered all of it. I think it was great, actually. You asked some really good questions, actually. Really interesting I thought some stuff that I hadn't thought of for a while. No, not particularly really. I think the thing about rowing is that it, most of the grand godkids, kids, my, my kids, they came from rowing. And just made great friendships from the sport as well as having all this international experience in racing. You know, I remember people at university saying to me, how much did it cost you to row internationally? It's like, oh, it's like 50 quid a year. It's like, oh my God, that's loads of money. I said, like, well, how much do you spend on beer? And I get to travel the world and race against some of the best people in the world. I'm really lucky that I get to do that. Mm-hmm. So I did that again. I missed people's 21st and weddings. So I'd still do that again. Mm-hmm. I made some amazing friendships from that, from all of it. Great
0: well, advice. And how can people find you online?
1: I guess I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not on social media very much. I'm on, I've am i got both Facebook and Twitter, but I don't use it very much. LinkedIn's probably easier just through the little website. They can just email me.
0: Okay. And registering for the Rose Conference?
1: Yeah, just go to Com, And we've got, hopefully, depending on COVID, we are trying to do it hybrid style. So there will be some stuff at Dorney Lake on the day, hopefully. But we'll find out next week or two. But we are going to do um, some of it online. So the three keynotes will be live online if you want to do that that's quite affordable so 25 pounds sleep
0: exactly yeah covers the cost of listening to some great people yeah exactly i wanted to thank you very much on the, the live part of the show for sharing so much i'm very grateful that that you are indeed sharing your expertise to help others i know it's a business okay with Ludum and the rose conference but i think it's really empowering people building capability and making it a lot easier for them to enjoy the sport that they love. So I've, I've learned a lot. I, I tell you, when I was doing my research, I thought you, Adrian, you don't talk anything about your successes in your past. You're only interviewing others. So it's been a great pleasure to, to talk to you today. So thank you.
1: Have you, Bill? I've really enjoyed it. has been
0: great questions. John. Really, thank you very much. Thank you. Join me next time when I'll be talking with one of the rowing world's most interesting people, And if you like this episode, you can subscribe so you never miss an episode in the future. Oh, and please, if you like it, leave us a five-star review. That really helps us out. You can find out more about our unique training system and high-performance coaching by visiting whchambers.com.